Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. Now, uh, you called it magic, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I call it programming. At Strangeloop 2017, I wandered into a talk where I saw some code that deeply surprised me. The code could have been Python if you squinted. It was passing dictionaries around, no type annotations anywhere. Yet the key lookup in the dictionary was validated at compile time. It was a compile time error to access elements that didn't exist. Also, the dictionary was heterogeneous. The elements had different types, and it was all inferred at compile time. What I was seeing was dependent types in Haskell. In today's interview, I try to understand what was happening in that talk. Stephanie Weirich is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and works on extending the type system of GHC, uh, among many other things, I assume. Uh, Stephanie, welcome. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I saw I saw a talk that you that you did at at Strange Loop I think last year. Um it kind of blew my mind. Um and and it was about kind of extending the type system of Haskell to to support dependent types. So so what are dependent types? <laughs> That's a tricky question. <laughs> uh, and it's a tricky question because there's lots of answers to that question. Um, I, I, in some way, I created that talk just to answer that question because there's lots of definitions of what dependent types are. And those definitions can be technical where they classify some things as definitely being dependent types and some things as definitely not being dependent types based on mechanism. But I prefer to think more about applications. Can you get your language and your type system in your language to do particular applications and using that kind of definition? So in that talk, I walked through how Haskell, even though under some of the technical definitions, doesn't have dependent types yet, um, I walked through how it could already do quite a number of the activities that we want from dependent types. And, and at the end, kind of pointed out what, what still needs to go into Haskell to, um, to make it a full spectrum dependently typed language. Now, that's, I guess that's not really asking your, answering your question about what dependent types <laughs> are. Um, but just to briefly summarize, um, I, dependent types are a way of having some kind of computation in your type system. So you can use your types to express um, domain specific invariants about your program that the type checker uses to check your code. Um, there's a lot of the um, inspiration that I get for extensions for Haskell's type system comes from Martin Loft type theory. So this is a specific mathematical formalism that is used in the foundations of logic to um, create formal systems to describe what is provable and what is true. 
So I had, uh, I did an interview with uh, Edwin Brady who, who created Idris and, and he said he likes this term, maybe just, I'm not sure if just applied to Idris or in general, but he likes the term first class types. He said, you can think of dependent types as just like a programming language where you can manipulate types, just like, just like their values. How do you feel about that? That gets a that captures quite a bit of what you get from dependently typed languages, and and this is one of my goals. And Haskell is is very similar to what Idris provides, giving you. And this is what I mean a, a bit in having your type system be as programmable as the rest of the language. Um, this lets you uh, again lets you express why you think uh, your program has particular properties using the same language that you do to implement your, your, your system. So your logic and your programming languages have a really nice uniformity to them. Mm. So uh, what, what, makes, what makes dependent types useful? <laughs> <laughs> um. So there's many levels to answer that question, right? Of course, type checking is useful because we want to use it to um, both identify bugs in our programs, but also to capture some structure while we are programming, to be able to think about our programs, both in terms of what they do at runtime, but also at a more abstract level. What what do we know is always true about our code versus what is what is true at this particular moment? Um, or what is true about this entire class of values versus what is true about this particular value. So type systems naturally give us this uh, form of abstraction. And without dependent types, this kind of abstraction is, is limited in that you can only talk about it in the abstract level. You can't really go back and forth between, at this point, I kind of know this, but um, I depend, but uh, what I get from dependent types is the ability to be able to say, based on this runtime test, I know this about my, I know this about my compile time value. Um, so it lets you kind of, it gives you much more flexibility about the interaction between sort of your context sensitive tests and what your type checker knows at compile time. So I, I find it, it is a tricky subject to grasp um, the advantages, but but you had this example that I really liked. So um, it was it was regular expressions, right? Could, could you describe the example you had of of using dependent types? Sure. Um, yeah. So I use this example in the strange loop talk because I really kind of captured what dependent types can give you in lots of different ways. So in the example. Um, the nice thing about a regular expression is that uh, most of the time you use very concrete regular expressions, right? We're trying to, uh, and I was using the example not just for matching regular expressions, but for doing something that's called capture groups, where you could take a regular expression and name specific parts of it and pull out parts of the text, like a very primitive form of parsing. Um, and if you have a concrete regular expression, you should be able to look at that regular expression and know exactly um, what 
parts of the regular expression are going to get captured, how many groups are going to get captured. Um, regular expressions allow you to name those groups. So what are the names of the subparts of the regular expression that can form a capture group. And also, because regular expressions allow you to alternate or have optional components, sometimes the capture groups will definitely give you an answer, and sometimes they might give you an optional answer, and sometimes they might give you several different answers, like, for example, if you're under a cleany star. And so, the, the type of the capture group might depend on where it appears inside that regular expression. So in the Strange Loop talk, I go over designing a library for regular expression capture groups where the type checker can look at the regular expression and figure out what kind of result you're going to get from that particular regular expression. So that when you get that, it's essentially a dictionary, but that dictionary, sometimes it, um, it's going to match a name of a capture group to a string. Sometimes it's going to match it to an optional value. Sometimes it's going to match it to a list. But we know this at compile time. And so the type checker should help you um, use this correctly because all the information is there when you type check your program. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's not something I've thought about before. So if you have a regular expression string and it has... Um, like if, if it has something that ends in a question mark, then, then that means that, you know, you may or may not get a value. So, so that if the type system could get hold of that information, it could, it could be a maybe or an option. Or if you have a, if you have a star, then, then you might be matching actually maybe a star. If you have a, a capture group with a star, then you could get multiple matches, I guess. Right. So this information is embedded in this string, but it's, Without dependent types, you're, you're not getting it in the type system, right? Exactly. And um, the connection between how you interpret that string to um, what the type system should think about, that's not something any language like should have built in. This is something that the, a regular expression library should be able to express via some kind of programming. This is, should be part of the design of the library that supports these regular expressions. And so um, the, the thing that really blew my mind, I guess, is so I, I take this regular expression. So uh, your example was uh, matching uh, like Unix paths. So you're, you're getting like um, you give it a path and um, there could be multiple like subdirectories and then a file name and an extension. Um, and you're, you were giving these names. So you have, you can get back, you know, a match for the directories, a match for the base name and a, and a match for the extension. You, you run your regex and you get back this dictionary. Um, and then you show, I, I think part of the magic is you, so, so you call into the dictionary, you say, get me the base name, and it, and it comes back. But then you try to get back some other element from the dictionary that wasn't part of your capture group, and it's a compile time exception. And I think that's kind of when that's kind of when the light bulb went off for me. I was like, oh, there's, there's something magic here. Um, well, because I know that... Um, well, I mean, that's not how I expect dictionaries to work, I guess. And I know there's a whole class of languages where they spend a whole bunch of time throwing dictionaries around and it's hard to validate, say, like in JavaScript, if you, you know, if you access some element in, in this dictionary and then it's like a runtime error if you, if you make a spelling mistake and here we're pushing all that system, uh, to the, 
to the compiler, I guess. Uh, so how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that that's kind of what I like about the example is that it, it very much does relate to dictionaries and kind of shows you that even in JavaScript and, and a lot of these dynamic languages, right, um, parts of our dictionary when we create it are very dynamic, right? We don't know at compile time uh, as like, we when I say compile time, I mean, we don't know so much at development time what we're going to get, but maybe, maybe we do. And if we do, we should be able to tell that to our compiler so that the compiler can help us out. Because once we have created this capture, this dictionary, um, if we know what its structure looks like at compile time, we should be able to have the compiler help us out, help us use it correctly. Now, uh, you called it magic, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I call it programming, right? So yeah. the the talk kind of walks through how it works step by step, but sort of the like some of the key ideas are. Um, Constructing the regular expressions with types that are rich enough to calculate and express what the what the capture groups are, um, mm -hmm. so that when you construct the when you construct the regular expression, you know just from its type how those capture groups interact with each other. But the types themselves, the um, they're a little more expressive than we usually see in programming languages because the types of the regular expression operators, like, um, um, for example, uh, concatenation, where you do one regular expression and then another one right after it, right? You're combining two together. The type of that operator says, well, the capture group from this entire regular expression is going to be some merging of the capture groups that we get from the first regular expression and the capture groups that we get from the second regular expression. And then we can write that merging as a functional program that takes this compile time data, the capture group data, and combines it together. Mm -hmm. um, the, the part that's a little confusing about that, I guess, is that um, we're providing a string. Yes. So I think I think in this case the magic is. Well, I should stop saying the word magic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have a regular expression string, yes. and you're saying we're going to turn this into a more um, complex type. Now I, I'm not really familiar in my programming experience with taking a string and turning it into a type. Ah, ah. Um, so, so part of the magic was I was using a feature of Haskell, and one of the the great things about working in Haskell is it's it's a it's a rich language, so it has a lot of lot to draw on. So I can put many features together. So one of the features I was using was a feature that's called Template Haskell, which is a way of doing. Um, it's another way of doing compile time programming in Haskell. So it allows you to take things like a string and just run Haskell code on that string to produce Haskell abstract syntax, which then is type checked and inserted into your program at that point. And so the very first step of that example was taking the regular expression string and 
and creating a parser for that regular expression string that would replace the string with some regular expression constructors that I had developed for my library. So the parsing part is not so much dependent types as being able to use this template Haskell feature. So it's um, so you're writing a parser as you would have to do to to write your a normal regular expression library. Yes. And the the trick is um, it's being called sort sort of like in a macro, like at at uh, yeah, at very much time. like a macro at compile time. And then. Um, somehow when this dictionary is returned, when I apply a match, that, that dictionary needs to know um, all this type information. So that when I when I ask for, oh, I didn't even describe this, when I ask for the, the directories, actually you're coming back um, as a list because your regex knows that there could be multiple directories just based on its parsing and is, and is returning the type of the match. So how, how does it know... How, how is the dictionary type constrained um, in that way? Yeah, so that, um, so an important feature of dependent type system is this idea of an index type. So this is a data structure that is indexed by some compile time data, and that compile time data um, enforces constraints on that data structure. So you can imagine just a simple dictionary data structure as an association list where I can say I can map any string to any value. But the constraints might, we might want to say is not any association list. Association list where the first association is between this string and this type of value, and the second association is between this string and this type of value, and there isn't any anything else. Right, so we can go from a very, very general type, arbitrary association list, to a very, very specific dictionary types, association lists that have exactly this form. And the, and the mechanism that we're doing there is the index type, that the, the index on the dictionary constrains what the association list has to look like. Why is it called an index type? Um, this is terminology that it's adopting from dependent type theory. So if you think about, um, you can think about it as um, the dictionary type is actually a function from its type argument to many, many different types. And the type argument is serving as an index to which particular type you actually mean. So there is a function that takes a type, um, like the type of, of, of base directory and then returns a dictionary that has a base directory. Am I on the right track? <laughs> um, I'm thinking of it as, at a, a slightly different level, right? Okay. Um, so here's the, here's a very, very simple, um, example of an index type. It's very, very simple. Um, it, uh, it's indexed by a Boolean value, and if the Boolean is true, then our type is integer, and if our mm. Boolean is false, then our type is character, right? Okay. And so, the we can have a general type that, if we don't know what the Boolean is, we know it's either an integer or a character, but if we do know what the Boolean is, we know precisely which one it is. I follow. Um, so, that is an index type. 
um, actually, I thought that was um, type computation, where you're you're taking an argument and computing a type. Are these related concepts, or um, they are related? Um, what makes it an index type is that we actually are uh, making a decision based on this uh, static information. Okay. Right. Does could, this? Go ahead. Um, but th this is just to distinguish things like type parameters, where we might take one type and give another type, but treat that type argument parametrically. Like, for example, a list data type has a parameter for the elements in the list. And so the list type constructor takes... Um, uh, takes types and gives us new types from it. So that is still type, that's still a type function, but it's a, it's a parametric type function. And so the type theory for working with a parametric type function, it works out fairly differently than if we can actually, if the system allows you to make distinctions on what those arguments are. And so there might be a theme of this interview of me asking you stupid questions. However, <laughs> a type function is is that that's just a function that returns a type as its as its yes. output. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got one. There we go. <laughs> so, does this does this relate to uh, generalized algebraic data types? Yeah. So this is uh, so gadgets are um, the mechanism that we can use for index types in Haskell. Um, so it's a way to so um, so in Haskell you could express. Uh, Standard Haskell, you have parametric data types like list, right? Mm -hmm. And each constructor treats that type type argument to list parametrically, right? Um, you know, nil is going to give you a list of that type, and uh, cons is also going to give you a list of whatever the type argument is. Um, and there's not that much interaction between your data constructors and and that type argument because of this restriction to parametricity. With gadgets, um, you can have interaction between your type arguments and your data constructors. So in a gadget, so a very simple example of a gadget might be you have some type that takes in a Boolean, right? And mm -hmm. then this is going back, making that earlier example I gave you a little more precise, right? Mm -hmm. So our type, let's call it T, it takes in a Boolean as its index, and it has two constructors, one that takes in a char and another that takes in an int. And we, and we know that based on, and we can reflect that in our Boolean to say that if we are using the constructor that takes in a char, we'll say we don't create just T with an arbitrary Boolean, we'll take a, a T where the Boolean has to be true. And if we're going to do one with uh, the constructor that takes in an int, then that's going to force the Boolean to be false. And so that, what that means is elsewhere in our program, if we have T where we know that index is true, we know exactly what constructor made that value. Because one of the constructors gives us a type where the Boolean is true, and the other constructor gives us a type where the Boolean is false. And so it wouldn't even type check if we had used the other constructor. We know exactly which constructor we have, so we know exactly what the type of the argument should be. And we know we don't really have to, if we do a case analysis, we know we only even need to do one branch. We don't have to do that other branch. And this is the 
seems like the baby step into into crossing over these these data and types are now depending upon each other. Exactly, right? So this is capturing a connection between what's going on at compile time and what's going on at runtime. So back to this dictionary, we get this dictionary back after I run my my regular expression match. And yes. in it I can I can look up by I can say give me the the directories. So I I pass this this dictionary the string directories. Um does What's happening at compile time and what at runtime? Where where does are we storing those those strings? Uh, uh, the the lookup keys. Yeah. So one neat thing about this example is because the type system keeps track of all the keys, we don't need to store them at runtime. Right. So the way the example the way we had implemented that example, um, for a given regular expression, you knew what all the lookup keys are going to be. And so the type system would sort those keys into alphabetical order. So it would know exactly where in the result dictionary a particular lookup key had to be. Right. So from this particular regular expression, um, like we were getting the directories and the extensions and the file names. So we knew the directories would be the first part of that dictionary because D comes before E and comes before F, right? So we don't need to actually go and look at, at any keys because we know we know where uh, where in the data structure we're going to store the, the values already. So... Um, we're looking up via with this compile time string, and that's taking us to um, to it's accessing the part of the dictionary right of way. It's pretty cool, and so not only are we um, so so not only do we have this this dictionary in which if we try to access uh, an element that's not there, you know, we get a compile time exception, but but also at runtime. Like whatever the overhead of actually using a dictionary is gone because that like the dictionary doesn't actually exist at runtime. It's just an array. Um, it's it is a linked list, and um, we do know where it is, which index in the linked list we want to access at compile time. I'm not quite sure how much inlining goes on when the compiler, uh, when GHC compiles it to know whether it will specialize it to actually go right to that spot or whether you will have to actually go down to that point in the dictionary. Okay. In, in a theoretical sense, I mean, dependent types could in theory make things faster at runtime because, um, or, or is there overhead to, to having this extra information? So in a theoretical sense, we have more information at compile time. So very much the compiler could take advantage of this information to make things faster. And there are examples of, of people using dependent types to speed up their code, to eliminate runtime pattern matching that they would have to do because they don't need like if you know a check will always succeed, you can eliminate the compiler can eliminate eliminate that check safely. So I'm thinking of um, I don't know if you read Yaron Minsky's blog. He is a CTO of Jane Street, and the no, but 
So the OCaml language also has gadgets. And about a year or two ago, he wrote a blog article about how they were able to use gadgets to not just for the safety, but also to, to speed up part of their code by eliminating these redundant checks. Oh, wow. Just, we're just giving more information to that can be used to optimize in, yes. in some sense. Exactly. So what happens if, I, if I'm throwing away these keys, what happens if I want to print out this dictionary? Like I want a nice, you know, key equals value, key equals value, key equals value. <laughs> yeah, so... We're not throwing them away because the compiler still knows about them when it compiles the program, right? The type checker, the, the, the key that we have is in the type. And so to, to, for printing, right? Um, in that part of the strange loop talk, I demonstrated how we could print out these dictionaries. And there I was taking an advantage of Haskell's type classes, which are ways that this is a mechanism Haskell allows you to use compile time information to insert runtime values. Um, the the equivalent in Scala, I think, are implicit arguments, where you're using type information to control what argument you supply at runtime. In this case, our implicit information is the name of the key, right? That's the type. That's part of the type. And so, in the runtime information that we're going to insert with the with the type class is the actual string that we're going to print out. So, um, again, like. Part of like a high level theme is having a lot of flexibility between storing your information in the type at compile time and having it available to you at runtime. And when you're working in an expressive language like Haskell, you can go back and forth very easily where you can use the indices to, to kind of capture the connection between the runtime and the compile time data. And you can use type classes to have your compile time data control what runtime data is inserted by the compiler. Uh, and this works together very neatly. So um, the programmer doesn't need to add a lot of annotations or a lot of duplications, even though, um, you know, some parts of the program are at one level and other parts of the program are at a different level. And I think you called this double duty data. That's a little bit hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a tongue twister. Um, yeah, so that's exactly what I mean in terms of having a compile time view of your program and a runtime view of your program. Um, being able to use the same data to capture invariants about your code to, to as indices on your types, right? So we know that we have to have this key in our dictionary. So we're going to use that key as part of our index. That's one way we're using that data. And in another way we're using that data is we need to have it at runtime. So we need to use it to control what gets printed when we print out that dictionary. And having the flexibility to be able to use that data in both ways is sort of is what I meant by the double duty nature of it. One thing I think that is probably obvious to Haskell programmers, but maybe not others, like th there's no reflection um, because I think it seems to me this the different runtime versus compile time might break down if you were able to somehow 
inspect things uh, like you can do in the JVM with reflection. Is that true or? Um, or is so it unrelated? <laughs> it's, it's very related, but in perhaps non-obvious ways. Okay. Right. So one, and the reason I'm pausing is that one thing that dependent types allow you to do is to encode a very principled form of reflection into your language. So Haskell actually does have some kinds of reflection using a, a library called data.typable. So this library allows you to have runtime witnesses to type to uh, to types that usually are erased when you when you run your Haskell program. So how could this be? Well, it's under um, in terms of the type system, it's using several different mechanisms. So it's using type classes to keep track of which types have runtime evidence and which types do not. And then it's using some of the same mechanisms that we use to implement Gadgets to connect that runtime type information to the compile time types so that as you use it, as you look at that runtime type information, you can do it safely. So, um, so Haskell does have a form of reflection, and that form of reflection is actually implemented using the same mechanism. So instead of reflection getting in the way of dependent types, we have dependent types allowing us to have a very safe form of reflection. And is data typeable? Is that related to like like generic deriving and um, generic like scrap your boilerplate type <laughs> stuff? Um, so no, that's a different feature. Um, so generic deriving, um, so that's also, uh, so typable is mainly concerned with, um, runtime information about types based on their names, right? So whenever you create a data type in Haskell, you have a, you have a new name for a type and the mm -hmm. runtime information that it's storing, it doesn't remember like what the structure of that data type definition is. It just remembers, I have a type that's called this name and maybe it's applied to these arguments. Um, for generic programming, you need that extra structure information. So generic programming in Haskell, especially generic deriving, it allows you to take the structure of a type and, and express um, how you might derive particular operations that are dependent on that structure. So for example, um, if you are thinking about a show function for a type, uh, for, mm -hmm. a, for a particular data type, how you, you could get kind of far by just saying, well, I know it has these constructors and these constructors take these arguments and I know how to show all the arguments. So to show it, um, we could have a generic version of show that just sort of looks at that structure information and figures out how to crawl over that tree and construct a string out of that data type. Right. But in order to do that, you need to know what that structure looks like. You need to know how many constructors there are for each of those constructors, what the arguments to the constructors are. So I guess the question that we haven't really touched on is, um, how are we adding features to Haskell? Haskell exists, but but we're how, how are you making it dependent or pushing it in that direction? Um, so Haskell is, is a research language. And so it is... 
been very open to experimentation with new features. So um, I have in the past and and continuing been collaborating with the Haskell developers with new ideas for type system features. So um, Haskell, the the Glasgow Haskell compiler has this ability to introduce new features protected by language pragmas. So these language pragmas, um, they mark which source files adopt new features so that um, it gives a little bit more flexibility so that we can look at features that aren't quite completely backwards compatible. So to to enable a new feature on your Haskell program, you have to specifically ask for it. But in turn, that means that the new feature doesn't have to behave exactly the same on the old source code. And so we, so as we're extending the compiler, we don't have to worry so much about breaking old programs as much as we're providing access to new programs. Um, now, of course, as a research project, Haskell has been going for many, many years. So there's quite a number of language features now, and and it can get a little bit ridiculous about <laughs> the number of language features that you might want to enable, especially since they they are a nice thing about it is they are defined at a very small level of granularity. This is good for research into programming languages because if if we have small language features, um, we can think about how they interact in lots of different combinations, as opposed to just throwing in every new feature that we want into one, one sort of monolithic, you know, enable dependent types that does everything. We can kind of look and see that, okay, this feature is good for dependent types, but we also see people using scope type variables just for lots of other um, applications that perhaps we had not even thought about. And we can tease that apart from sort of the, our initial ideas about how um, new language features might be used. Yeah, in your talk, I'll, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. I, I recall like one of the first slides is basically just entirely full of, of extensions that you're enabling. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I guess that, so I guess that, that, that begs the question, like, do, how, how do we, how do these things not interact negatively? How, how do we have all these language ex extensions? It seems like there's an exponential uh, amount of combinations of them. How how do we have them cleanly sitting together? Or is there combinations that are, are verboten or? Um, usually they don't interact too much. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a hard problem in general in language design, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, when we're looking at languages and we're thinking about new features, we may take a, we may think about that new feature extended on a small core, but it's very, very difficult to think about how it interacts with every possible other combination. Now, the compiler does have to answer that question. How does, how do all these language features interact? Because it has to implement every single one of them at the same time. So there is that. But in terms of, um, will this feature interact with that feature? It has been the case in some compilers that um, two different features enabled at the same time could expose a hole in the type system. Um, one, and this kind of gets me to some re uh, a recent research project that I'm looking at. Um, 
is being able to use proof assistance to do some of the type safety proofs for our programming languages, right? If you look at, so I'm specifically talking about type system extensions, right? Mm -hmm. Type system extensions, we develop them by making a mathematical model of the type system, extending it with, extending that model and improving that whatever theorems we want to hold about our language still hold. Usually it's, it's a, theorem that's called type soundness that says mm -hmm. that if your program type checks, uh, we have captured all the behaviors. Your program is not going to crash. And we don't, do, we do that feature by feature, but we don't typically define a model that has all of the features in it at once and prove our type system sound for that really, really big model. And the reason is it's it's really big. That's a lot of that's, <laughs> um, that's a very detailed detail heavy proof too, and it's very easy to kind of miss all the cases. And so what I've been one line of research that I have is let's do all those proofs in a proof assistant. So there are tools. So I I use one that's called the Cock Proof Assistant that allows you to explain these mathematical models as programs in a type theory in, in, in a logical system, and then write down a theorem in that system, and then use programming to help develop those proofs. And so what that does, the benefit of that is, is that um, you have the, the proof assistant checking your proofs. And then you also, since it's, since your proofs are kind of developed programmatically, you can automate a lot of the sort of boilerplate aspects of your proof. And I think that's going to allow us to um, look at our features in combination at a, at a scale that we haven't been able to do in the past. Interesting. Uh, an interesting thing I, I just thought of is, so, so Cock is also a, Cock is a dependently typed language, right? Um, yes. And so I, I'm assuming that, that you're, um, you're kind of admitting that maybe Haskell's not, it's not up to the, the burden of, of doing this proof within Haskell. The, de the dependent type system isn't as, as feature rich as, as a, a proof assistant because you're, you're going out to another language to, to prove these. Is that, is that true? Um, yeah. So, so I'm using, so Cock, there is, there is definite, definite similarity here, right? Because they're both, um, Cock is an implementation of the dependent type theory that is an inspiration for Haskell's type system, or at least some of the extensions that I've made for it. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's one very big difference between, um, Cox type theory and Haskell's type theory. And the big difference is that in Cox, there's this, um, there's, in addition to having this type soundness property to know that because things type check, they don't crash. We also have a, a much stronger property, which says that this type theory is consistent when we're looking at it as a logic. Right. And this is kind of looking at your programs in, in a different way where you're looking at programs as if they were proofs. And then the types are the, are the propositions that they're proving. 
So a, a proof in Coq is really saying, here is this type. I'm using the type to talk about something that I think should be true. And I know it's true because I'm giving you this proof, but that proof is just a functional program that has that type. Um, and to know things are consistent, well, you have to be able to know that um, false propositions don't have proofs. So in Coq, there's a there's a particular proposition that's just called false, um, and there's no program that can have that type. So we have types that are empty. In Haskell, every single one of ty the types that we have in Haskell, there are functional programs that have that type, and the reason is we have um, we have things like infinite loops in Haskell. You can write an infinite loop, and you can give it whatever type that you want. And so that reason, we can't use Haskell as this logical um, foundation in the same way that we can use Cox type theory, because we don't have the um, termination analysis in Haskell that, that Cox does. And the type system hasn't made the decisions that Cox does to ensure this consistency of the, of the, of, of the, of the language when we view it as a logic um this relates um i think right to, to uh totality checking like i know in idris you can you can turn on or off totality checking yeah yeah this is exactly what i'm talking about so in idris when you turn on the totality checking you can use that part of the program to represent uh, proofs but if you don't have the totality checker turned on, then the programs that you write in that part of, of the system can only be interpreted as programs. You can't treat them as proofs. In Haskell, we don't have a totality checker anywhere, so we can't really use it in the same way to encode proofs as we do in Cox dependently typed functional programming language. Now, in your talk, you, you did talk about um, writing, I think, equality proofs um, in Haskell. So in Haskell, there's actually another language embedded inside of Haskell that is the witness language for equality proofs. And users don't use that explicitly, but that that language is manipulated by the Haskell type checker. And that language, actually, it turns out, is consistent. It's a, it's not as expressive as Cox uh, dependently type language, but it has that same consistency property that Cox language has. Mm. And um, when you're writing Haskell code, you can um, uh, you can use the Haskell type checker to encode specific equality proofs that you need to be able to um, provide the to provide the evidence that two types are equal, which is a lot of what you need to do when you're type checking, right? So when you're type checking code, like the main question that you're asking when you're type checking is, is this, you know, is the type of this function, of this argument appropriate to the type that this function expects? It's a lot of equality checking questions. And so being able to justify to the type checker why two types are equal, that does require work sometime. And some of the work that you can do is um, controlling how these uh, equality proofs are generated. And to me, like I, I didn't really understand this, um, why this would be an important or hard thing until I started working through uh, the Idris book and 
as you start exposing this kind of, I guess, uh, data at the type system, um, th- things get a little tricky. So like the, the easiest example that, that I hit was just like, you have like a vector, you know, and it has the length encoded in the type, right? So, um, but then you have like a function that, that adds two vectors, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like vector n plus m, um, but you want to pass it where it's like vector m plus n, like just the arguments are reversed. It's very simple to see, like for me, that these are the same, but I have to somehow tell the type system that, that n plus m and m plus, you know, that, that, that this equivalence holds. Exactly. And that, and that's what I mean that where I say like uh, equality proofs are a very essential part of type checking, right? Because you end up with a lot of questions like this. Is this expression that I'm using as a type index equal to this other expression that I'm using as a type index? And the, the type system itself is going to have a definition of when two things are equal, but that's not going to cover all of the cases when two types are equal. Just like, for example, the type system doesn't define this associativity of addition. This is something it doesn't know intrinsically. It's something that you have to justify to it via some kind of proof. Mm. So you have worked on a whole lot of extensions to the type system of Haskell. Um, uh, the, the one that I've actually used is the generalized algebraic data types. Um, so how is it? How, what's the process of, of working on that? Was it a challenge? Fun? Uh, certainly fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so my role has been mostly on the theory side. So looking at the mathematical models and making sure that uh, things work well with how type, Haskell does type inference. And also Haskell has this... Uh, statically typed core language that after type inference, it elaborates to the statically typed core language. And that's where we want to make sure that it has this type soundness property. So um, so my role has been to work with um, Haskell developers like uh, Simon Peyton Jones is one of the main developers of the Haskell language, collaborating with him about nailing down precisely what these extensions look like and doing proofs to make sure that they have the properties that they have. And also working with some of my PhD students who also assist him in extending the Glasgow Haskell compiler, GHC, with these with these new capabilities. And as an academic, uh, how, how does it work? Like, do you so, so you're writing a paper about some extension. Is the extension written um, along with that, after that, before that? The paper discusses it in retrospect or? Um, usually we, we work on the implementation at the same time as we work on the theory, right? Because um, we want to have a complete view of what's going on with this extension. So the theory kind of tells us what guarantees we can get from this extension, but it doesn't tell us that the extension is actually useful. So for that, it's good to have an implementation where you can try out examples and make sure that the things that you want to use the extension for actually work. In terms of usefulness, do you do do you collaborate with industry at all or or how do you determine usefulness is it purely theoretical or is it looking at code oh uh, so we look at a lot of code so uh uh, a lot of there's a lot of open source Haskell code out there, 
And um, in particular, uh, so there was a, a package that I developed with my former PhD student, Richard Eisenberg, who's now an assistant professor at Bryn Mawr College. And we developed one package that's called the Singleton's package. And it was a way of encoding dependent types in Haskell using gadgets um, without having actual dependent types. It was a way for us to kind of judge the usefulness of dependent types before actually doing the full extension. And the nice thing is that we can go to the Haskell package repositories and look for other packages that depend on this particular library. So we can see what are people using dependent type like features for in practice? What kinds of code? How are they taking advantage of it? So that might be people in industry, that might be other research projects that are not about dependent types, but they want to take advantage of these Haskell features to do their particular application, or it might be people who just want to code up interesting problems. Do you see dependent types filtering out outside of Haskell, outside of um, you know this very researchy type industry into mainstream programming languages? I hope so. Um, I mean, so already things like Gadgets, uh, right? So OCaml also supports Gadgets. If you look at Scala, um, actually Scala has its own mechanisms for encoding dependent types that take advantage of some of the features of Scala that are different from Haskell. So in Scala's type system itself has already had to ad adopt a little bit of dependent type theory just to describe the, the interactions between the uh, subtyping and objects and functional programming that happens in Scala. And I've seen some really great um, libraries that take advantage of that to push that to have more dependent type-like features in Scala itself. So um, I would love to see more of that in Scala. I I would love to see more of that in um, all sorts of languages with static type systems. Yeah, I think your example, I mean, shows how it could be quite useful in an interesting way, which is your your regex library, um, as a user of it, um, you don't really need to know much about dependent types. The implementation uses them, right? But the, the actual user, they, they just use it and get this get this extra features added. Yeah, and and I think that's part of that is careful library design, right? Certainly, dependent types are are a power tool that if um, if you're not careful, you can put um, heavy requirements on your users where they could end up with error messages that are not very obvious about how to fix it or how to use your library correctly, but. Um, so just like anything else, uh, thinking about what your interface is and how people will interact with the functionality that you provide is an important part of, of programming. And I think it's doubly so when you're working with the rich type systems of dependent type theory. I know, yeah, in Scala, like there is the the shapeless library, which which does a lot of dependently type looking things if you if you look at it correctly, and uh, it, it's quite complex to use. However, it's used all over the place in, in, a, in a number of libraries, and I think that what ends up happening is, um, seems like every large Scala project has shapeless included as some transitive dependency, right? So the, these features are being used, just not 
just more by library creators than um, than day to day users. Um, so I, I think that could be a vision for how this could work. Yeah, I think that's I think that's completely appropriate, right? I mean. Uh, we kind of view programming as this monolithic thing, but it's not. We have many different types of users coming into our to our languages and at, at many different levels and coming up with, you know, simple interfaces that newcomers can, can jump into to be able to do certain things quickly and easily is an important job that we have. But at the same time, we would need to make sure that we have, um, powerful features that library designers need to be able to develop um, uh, expressive and uh, efficient libraries. So we're running a little, we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you what, uh, what's new and exciting in the world of uh, programming language theory or type systems? Oh, that's always a hard question. Uh, what What are you uh, working on? What are you excited about? Okay, so uh, one thing that I'm working on that's that's new for me is um, at at Penn we're collaborating with some other researchers at Princeton and Yale at MIT on a project that we call the Science of Deep Specifications, and this the goal of this project is to to bring verification that is provided by a system like the Koch Proof Assistant to um, software systems at a very large scale, right? Not just proving individual little programs correct, but um, actually verifying a large part of your your system of your of your system from the hardware to your operating system to the compilers to the high level languages that you use. So in my part of it, I am looking at how can I apply the Cock Proof Assistant to verify and reason about the implementation of Haskell itself of GHC. Can I use Cock to show that um, some of the optimizations and some of the transformations in the type system that GHC uses is correct. And we're just starting this out. So we're just starting to be able to model Haskell code inside of Cock so that we can um, not just test the Haskell compiler to know that compilation is correct, but also have some much more formal guarantees. And as you were saying before, this might make it easier for future extensions because you'll have this proof to lean on? Uh, yeah, so hopefully this, so I'll have a proof to lean on and hopefully this can also be a platform for being able to reason about the combination of the extensions. So not just an knowing that an individual extension is, is sound with respect to a small core language, but if we have a large uh, proof of the entire system, we can think about how does that extension interact with everything else? Well, thank you uh, so much for your time, Stephanie. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. I, I've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.